public country-by-country reporting. It's no longer just a hypothetical transparency effort. It's getting closer and closer to becoming law, at least in the European Union. On today's episode of The Fiona Show, Transfer Pricing, we're examining what the EU's implementation could mean for multinationals and its impact on the global tax community. Joining us today is Cross-Border Solutions Transfer Pricing Director Pamesh Sharma and Queen Mary University of London Professor Christiana Paniayi. But first, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Don't get iced by Iceland. The Director of Internal Revenue has enforced administrative penalties on legal entities that don't comply with transfer pricing documentation requirements. The new rules apply to companies, including permanent establishments, that meet the income or asset threshold, which is 1 billion Iceland krona or nearly 8 million U.S. dollars. As for the penalties, they look a little something like this. A company will be charged 3 million krona or nearly 24 thousand dollars for each financial year that does not have sufficient documentation, three million krona for failure to submit requested documentation to the tax authority within 45 days, and 1.5 million krona or nearly twelve thousand dollars if the requested documentation submission is considered unsatisfactory and isn't corrected within 45 days. The penalties can be imposed for up to six income years following the initial year of penalization with a maximum penalty amount of 6 million krona or $47,500. The takeaway, Iceland's intense approach to transfer pricing isn't thawing anytime soon. Russia isn't Russian into transfer pricing audits. It's concentrating on pre-audit analysis. So what is a pre-audit analysis? Glad you asked. The Federal Tax Service examines controlled transactions and allows companies to change their tax positions without going through a full transfer pricing audit. Here's how it's done. The tax authority pinpoints high-risk companies and then launches into a deeper investigative dive. We're talking information requests, employee interviews, and discussions with the taxpayer to learn about intragroup operations and circumstances. Based on its findings, the authority can recommend a tax base adjustment, which the taxpayer can implement or nix. If the pre-audit comes to a close without an agreement, then a full-blown audit erupts. While Russia has had transfer pricing legislation in place for nearly a decade, it's leaning on pre-audit analysis to identify and resolve issues before they become a bigger problem. Germany is shifting gears and fast. The country's tax administration has now issued new transfer pricing administrative principles effective immediately. Yep, you heard that correctly, immediately. The principles are based on the OECD's Transfer Pricing Guidelines 2017 in an effort to sync its arm's length principle with the rest of the post-BEPS world. As for what the principles entail, they spell out everything from acceptable transfer pricing methods and the use of DEMPA to analyzing intangibles and illustrating losses. Just like Germany didn't waste any time enacting the rules, taxpayers shouldn't waste any time reviewing them. The new changes could impact existing policies and documentation. 
Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. Welcome back, everyone. We're here now with Cross-Border Solutions' own Transfer Pricing Director Pamesh Sharma and Queen Mary University of London Professor Christiana Paniayi to discuss the European Union's impending implementation of country-by-country reporting. And for this conversation, I'm actually going to hand things off to Pamesh to lead this discussion. Pamesh, you have the floor. Okay, thank you. Hi, Christiana. So you're a professor in tax law. What drew you into the subject matter? I think a lot of people find themselves going into tax, sometimes randomly, sometimes intentionally. For me, it was in a way a conscious decision to go into tax, but not necessarily going to academia. I've always been a very academic person, as my professors told me, as well as the lawyers I worked with when I was doing my training contract in London. But my journey to academia was rather accidental. So I was doing my training contract at Allen and Overy. And in the second year, I started doing my PhD at the London School of Economics. And then I stopped my training contract. I finished my training contract and I finished my PhD. And one day I got a call from Queen Mary telling me there was a position as a tax lecturer and the rest is history in a way. That's interesting. And then what do you find most fascinating about tax law even to this day? I think tax law is very challenging. It's very fast paced, especially international tax law. In the last couple of years with BEVs, we can't keep track of everything that's been happening. I also think it's intellectually stimulating. And you never get the sense that you know everything, or even if you've learned everything at the point in time, next year things change. So I, I think it's it's fascinating, but it's also quite technical at times and difficult. And because there is no international sort of courts in place to monitor everything, sometimes there are different approaches. So that can be also challenging and frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I'm in complete agreement with that. I think that's something we can all sort of agree on. And also, I think in terms of my next question, I think congratulations are in order because you recently published the second edition of your book, European Union Corporate Tax Law. Can you tell us more about the book and what you learned during this particular writing process? This book was, as you say, it's a second edition. So it was an update of the 2013 book, which I published. And in the last seven, eight years, a lot of things have happened. So it felt more like rewriting the book rather than just updating it. So the book is about how EU law affects member states' corporate tax systems and the activities of companies. 
So I look at, I, I trace the historical development of youth corporate tax law, but also analyze a number of issues that affect companies, groups of companies, permanent establishments. So when I started this book in 2013, my focus was on sort of creating pockets of case law areas. So bringing a little bit more logic and coherence on this topic. At the time, most of the scholars were dealing with EU corporate tax law by looking at cases from the perspective of which fundamental freedom they were dealing with. But I tried to look at it more as topics like issues on direct investment, indirect passive investment, reorganization, anti-abuse. And I think that worked really well. And the second edition was easier in the sense of the, the structure was there, but there was a lot of updating needed. For example, there's a completely new chapter on fiscal state aid. There were a lot of developments on tax avoidance. Well, it's, I, I've done it now. <laughs> it's finished. Um, I'm, very, I'm very glad that it's out now. So hopefully it will do well in sales. The first edition did really well. I'm, I'm hoping the same for the second edition. Well, absolutely. Yeah, good luck for that. And, and it's interesting to hear that, you know, given the second edition was almost like a rewrite, it sort of sounds very similar to what's happened in specifically, in, even in transfer pricing, right, with the introduction of BEPS and all those changes that, you know, we haven't seen changes in probably in the last couple of decades so extensive. So, yeah. And it's raining changes right now. I mean, the EU has always been quite volatile in terms of development. So in taxation, it's been very strange because up until 2010, 11, I would say there were few developments, few directives coming through. And then suddenly with the BEPS project and all the momentum building, there's just also momentum of legislation coming in. One of which is this Republican Development Reporting, which is likely to be finally adopted now. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it, it is generally interesting, right, <laughs> what we're seeing, because it's, it's also being backed by what's happening, what people can see in the media. It's, it's almost very immediate, right? And going back to that second edition book, what do you want readers to take away from it, if anything? That's a good question. Well, I think it's more about the state of affairs in the European Union as far as taxation, corporate taxation is concerned how messy the way it has become and the need for reform, whether through harmonization or other directives. So it's more about depicting what has happened in the last few years and whether we have an improvement from 2013 with the first edition. As I say in my final chapter, it feels like a lot of the, that there's sort of new issues arising, new problems. So it, it just feels like if you're telling a story, it feels like the story is continuing and there's much more, many more developments to come in the next few years. Right. That's interesting. So now just going on to the main topic of discussion, right? So we're talking today about the EU public CBCR sort of draft announcements. So we know in just recently, only last month in June, it was a big month for public country-by-country country reporting in the EU. So in the beginning of the month, the EU Council and European Parliament agreed to endorse public country-by-country country reporting. And in fact, on June 14th, the relevant European Parliament committee signed off on a draft directive. So Christiana, can you give us an overview of the proposed directives? 
Yes, actually, this is not a new directive. This proposal is an amendment to an existing directive, which is the accounting directive on disclosure of financial accounts for large extractive and logging industries. So this has been in place since 2013. But the actual amendment, the aim of the amendment is to try and replicate in a way what has happened with BEPS Action 13, but also make it public. It's not exactly the same type of information that would be required, but from what I've seen from the provisional agreement, but it's the same logic behind it, that multinationals would have to publicly disclose some form of information. I mean, this is Aligned with other transparency initiatives for banks, we've had the Capital Requirement Directive for some years. There's also voluntary public country-by-country reporting. Some multinationals like Vodafone and Shell have been doing that for the last few years. We have also global reporting initiatives or sustainability reporting. So it's not something new, but it's the first time that there will be a legal obligation in the European Union for multinationals if they fall within the conditions of the directive to do this. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting you say that it's, you know, we all keep thinking, well, you know, this is something that's new, but actually it isn't. There's always been something there, this kind of an amendment or an addition, and and obviously other sectors have been complying with this for, for many years, right? That's really interesting, I think. And we know, from my understanding, it does apply to companies with consolidated revenue over a certain threshold, right? Something in the region of... 750 million euros? Yes, yes. The idea behind it is that this obligation will only be for the big multinationals, similar to country-by-country reporting, which is not public. So it's not going to affect every single group of companies. Member states, it took them a very long time to agree to this. It still hasn't been formally voted on. I mean, we have a provisional agreement, so anything can happen. It can fail in the end, but it's very likely that this amendment will be accepted in the end. And the difference is that there's a different legal basis now for this amendment. So the idea is that Council, European Council and European Parliament have to agree. And that is not usually the case for most tax proposals. So most tax proposals use a legal basis which requires unanimity in council. So most tax proposals, like, for example, the Anti-Tax Avoidance Directive or the Merger Directive, Parent Subsidy Directive, the Commission uses legal basis that requires unanimity in council. So all member states have to agree. Now, this amendment on the directive only requires a qualified majority in council, which effectively means 15 out of the 27 member states, plus there's a rule on 65% of the population to be represented. But anyhow, it's much easier in a way to attain qualified majority compared to unanimity. And also the legal base use requires agreement between the council and the European Parliament. Most tax proposals, the legal base that is used is unanimity in council and that's it. The European Parliament is not, might be consulted, but has absolutely no role in the legal process, in the adoption. It has been made easier to adopt this because even if there are member states that are descending, that still is not fatal to this proposal. 
And so we have had uh, a provisional text agreed and it looks like it will be going ahead. But as I said, until it is formally voted upon, anything can happen. Exactly. That's right, isn't it? It is a case of just holding our breaths to see what happens. It's almost like, you know, let's test the waters and see what the individual member states' responses will be. But that, that is interesting. And going back to that public report itself, so we know that large MEs will be asked to provide sort of, sort of detailed overview information, for example, of their corporate income taxes. And I guess probably similar with the CBCR, what sort of other items would need to be provided by the qualifying MEs? Okay, yeah. So basically, from what we've seen in the provisional agreement, and as I said, that's only provisional, multinationals, enterprises or standalone undertakings with a consolidated revenue of more than $750 million in the last two financial years, consecutive financial years, have to disclose what is called income tax information. And that kind of information, there's a list of information that would need to be disclosed. So this would be the tax information in each member state where this multinational enterprise or undertaking um, is present, but also in each third country, i.e. non-EU member state, which is listed in the EU list of non-cooperative tax jurisdictions. In fact, this is colloquially called the EU blacklist. So to the blacklisted or it's in a second category of the EU blacklist where effectively they have the country has given commitments, but it's like a gray list. When the company, the multinational, uh, satisfies the threshold test, uh, it has to disclose information as regards member states, the relevant plus uh, if it has activities or or if it has presence in these blacklisted jurisdictions. And the kind of material that will be required is information on the nature of the company's activities, the number of full-time employees, for example, amount of profit and loss. It's a very uh, long sort of technical list on uh, things like net turnover, etc. So it's similar to country-by-country reporting, but in less detail. So the idea was this to be a bit more high-level than the country-by-country reporting because it will be available on the website. So basically, you don't want some of this information to be out in the open without many restrictions. Now, I have to point out that the provisional text says that there will be an obligation on EU groups. So EU-parented groups have to do this. Non-EU parented groups, now that is where it gets a little bit complicated and probably one of the reasons why this proposal is likely to get a lot of criticism. So non-EU parented groups still have an obligation. So the, the EU subsidiary or the EU branch has to report, but they ask for the information from the non-EU parent, but the non-EU parents have an obligation to disclose that information if they don't want to. And that is okay under this piece of legislation. They say, well, you know, the, the EU sub has to try and get this information and explain why it didn't get information. That's it, which in a way this distorts the level playing field if EU parented groups have to prepare this report and publish it, whereas non-EU parent groups, basically the obligation is on the EU subsidiary to do it, 
and it, it will do it with as much information as is given from the non-EU parent. And there are no real sanctions if the parent company says, I'm sorry, I won't disclose that information, it's commercially prejudicial for example. So there is this idea that it might distort the level playing field between non-EU parented groups and, and EU parented groups. Yeah, that's really interesting. As you say, it's it's not disclosing everything probably that we're already seeing in the CBCR, which at the moment is, is not public, you know, it's not something that's available to download. But we know that in the CBCR, there is sort of additional requirements like stated capital, Listing, I suspect, all the entities, right? Constituent entities, not just trading, but it can include dormant. But it seems like this is more, this this gives the taxpayer more control, I suspect. Yes, yes. Control the narrative in a way. And mm. that is likely to cause problems as well. So as an initiative, the reasons behind it are praiseworthy for more transparency, discouraging multinationals to engage in aggressive tax planning. But some of the information that may be listed may not, you know, there are not that many people that can read that information and understand what it means. And so there is likelihood that it will be misinterpreted unless someone is an expert. And also there will be different, in a way, there will be a different compliance burden for EU and non-EU parented groups. So what if there is now an incentive for the group to have its headquarters outside of the EU, so it doesn't have to publish all these country-by-country reports. So it might also create more problems than it solves in the end, but that remains to be seen, the level of detail needed and the final agreement and, and implementation of it. I have to point out that there is provision in the new rules, proposals for deferrals of certain information that is, if it's going to be seriously prejudicial to the commercial position of the undertakings for five years. So there is some scope not to disclose some of this information, but it's only for five years and there needs to be an explanation in the report of why this was submitted. But there's definitely a potential for very different compliance load for groups depending on where the parent is. Yeah, that is very interesting. And uh, I think this leads me on actually to a very similar issue that we're already talking about. Are those sort of grey and black lists? Because, you know, as you were alluding to, Christiana, there are some sizable tax havens, right, which haven't been included. For example, Singapore, Switzerland, the Cayman Islands. There have also been some probably more neutral countries like Thailand and Fiji, Guam, Anguilla, Samoa that have been included. And so do you think that, you know, these public reports will be as effective at demonstrating aggressive tax planning or tax avoidance without these major tax havens also included? I assume you're talking about the EU blacklist. Correct, yeah. Yes. So this, what you need to understand is this is actually a live document, a live process. There's no one list that is set over time. It it keeps getting updated. It used to be every two months. Now it's maybe two, three times a year. And so the countries that are currently listed may not have been listed last year or may not be listed next year. So it's not a fixed 
picture of who will be subject to, if you have a structure with a Swiss subsidiary, that will be always, you have to do public country by country reporting when it comes to the Swiss subsidiary. But what you have identified, some of the problems with the EU blacklist are correct. There's a lot of criticism that some countries that are included are not really the more neutral, as you say. The usual suspects are not included. And that's in the, the whole way the EU blacklist was created. So the EU blacklist is soft law, basically. There's no competence for the European Union to be doing this. It was an initiative of the Commission to unify, to have a common external tax strategy for member states so they won't have different blacklists. So the idea was unify the blacklist to make sure that criteria were similar. And the criteria are based on, they're very vague themselves, they're on tax transparency, fair taxation, BEPS implementation. So the whole, I've been very critical of the EU blacklist. The whole process, I think, is problematic. The criteria, the fact that the body that does the monitoring, the code of conduct was very, there's lack of transparency as to what that body does and however it's appointed, it's appointed. I think it also strikes off, in a way, colonialism for the European Union to come up with a list of third countries that do not meet the EU standards of tax good governance. But, you know, it, this, it has been happening for the last few years. There are now important, very important implications if a third country is listed. For example, EU funds cannot be channeled or transited through entities that are blacklisted. Also, if you have, if you're advised, you're a tax advisor in a structure, and suddenly one of your entities is in a jurisdiction that has been blacklisted, then that is subject to automatic reporting under the DAC 6, the Directive of Administrative Corporation, the Sixth Amendment. There are also now suggestions for common sanctions. So the Commission came out with proposals for sanctions against these jurisdictions, like non deductible costs, CFCs, withholding taxes. So although this is considered to be soft law, it has very important implications. And there is a lot of criticism, not just on the how you come up with who is blacklisted, but also the fact that member states are not monitored. <laughs> this is only for third countries. And I think it was Oxfam, or one of the NGOs, that they did a research project looking at if we were assessing member states on the basis of this criteria, would they be blacklisted? And the answer was yes. And Interesting. So it is quite problematic and it has created a lot of tension with some of the smaller member states. There are calls by the European Parliament to also monitor member states on the basis of the same criteria. And I think what was rather ironic is that the EU is criticizing third countries and when the Biden administration published its Made in America tax plan a few months ago, it said in that report that there are some countries that are basically tax havens, and some of the listed countries were EU member states. 
So I guess it's the eye of the beholder what is good tax governance and what is not. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. It's a really interesting take on this because it has humble beginnings, but you is just part of this, right? You know, we have to consider, as you say, the the monitoring of you know who monitors EU. You know, where, where are the moral compass, if you like, for looking at non-EU countries and what do other nations outside of the EU say about this? This is very interesting. And so thank you for that. That's very, very enlightening. And before we proceed, I just wanted to, just for the benefit of our listeners, just to recap. So we know that public country by country reporting is, is no longer a figment of tax imagination. It is inching closer and closer to implantation within the EU. So in the latest course of action in the European Parliament, has approved this draft directive. And as we already know from Christiana, this isn't new. It's really just a combination of a series of amendments. And it would require ultimately multinational entities, foreign or EU-based, to disclose information about the inner workings of the company within the EU, as well as the black and grey list operating countries we've been talking about. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer, cross-border Solutions AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. So, Christiana, I'm interested in talking about the timing of this draft proposal because the European Commission first unveiled this in some format back in sort of 2016. And we also know there was strong support among the EU member states and, you know, perhaps planning the implementation of this in the first half of 2021. So what initially was the holdup and to what extent do you think COVID-19 was at play here in sort of delaying this whole process? Well, the holdup, it's fairly typical to have delays, especially when it comes to tax proposals, because member states don't like for the tax sovereignty to be affected. So any kind of tax proposals you would expect yearly delays. It's, it's not something that is rare. This time, unanimity was not even required. So for this not to pass, I mean, it meant like there was strong resistance by member states at the time. So you have to remember 2016 after the BEPS final report. So there was also the anti-tax awareness directive that came in, several amendments to the directive on administrative cooperation. So I think there's a bit of a feeling there's an overload of EU tax legislation. Perhaps that was part of the hesitation, plus some member states are always hostile towards further harmonizing rules in a way, because this is, you know, it does impose a compliance obligation, uniform compliance obligation. And also 
the BEPS, under the BEPS project, Action 13, there was no public country-by-country reporting agreed. So in a way, it was more about, okay, let's wait and see how this works, Action 13, without having it in public, and then we reassess. Now, it was basically the Portuguese presidency that really pushed for this amendment to be approved, basically, or to reach this stage. So often a lot depends on which country, which member state has a presidency, what their priorities are. So the Portuguese presidency did a lot of work and managed to get it to this stage. Perhaps the COVID-19 pandemic, again, is delaying it or has delayed it. But I think it's the idea behind it is not so much that it will help member states raise funds, raise more people to help the economic recovery, but more about holding multinationals more accountable, creating disincentives for aggressive tax planning. And I think it sort of all blends in right now. It's a good point in time for member states to agree to this, because if not, they would just be seen further facilitating aggressive tax planning. And there's absolutely no appetite for that among the public, you know, with the current economic recovery that is needed post-pandemic. Interesting. I mean, certainly, I think, yeah, it probably doesn't sort of increase the likelihood of closing the tax gap. I think that those are those are dealt with in other ways, but certainly I guess the pandemic certainly hastened the requirement or the need for some kind of public disclosure given the political pressures. Just going back, I think, you know, to the issues that could arise for multinational entities from public country by country reporting. I know, Christiana, you've you've touched on on some of these issues in terms of loss of competitiveness and so on. But do you think there are any other issues that could arise? multinationals from public country by country reporting? Well, I mean, some, some multinationals are already doing some form of public country by country reporting, although they said that you control their narrative much more when there are not any, any sort of rules in place as to what has to be disclosed. Obviously, additional compliance, and there's been so much more compliance added on EU companies, EU multinationals the last few years. There is a a risk for disclosure of confidential business information because from my reading of the text, of the provisional text, it's up to member states to decide rules which would enable multinationals to defer the publication of information. So you would expect some member states to be quite lenient when it comes to confidential business information, others much stricter, so that is likely to also cause intra-EU competition. And I also mentioned the unfair tax treatment, possible unfair tax treatment for EU multinationals if the non-EU parented groups are not under the same obligations. And also, I think there is a risk of reputational damage if data is misinterpreted. Because not everybody in the public has the expertise or the technical knowledge for interpreting country-by-country data. Perhaps there'll be some experts that can easily read through that. But I think it's likely to give rise to some complaints that, oh, because of lack of understanding rather than any mm. substance. Yeah, that just you know brought to mind the idea that countries can disclose standardized pieces of information, but how the public would interpret it is different, isn't it? Really, definitely. And how you control for that, you know, again, it's it can be all in the hands of the media, which almost nobody has control of. Which I guess in a, in a democratic world is a good thing, but it's how it feeds back to the reputational damage of, of multinationals and how how they can handle that. That's a really interesting point. Maybe another commentary or question is, is how will, we talked about sort of 
public reputation, you know, of a company. I mean, do you think perhaps on the flip side, could it be a beneficial tool, you know, in the sense of acting as a multinational entity, form of censorship and self-audit? Do you think, do you sort of agree with that? Definitely. It's a very powerful tool. I mean, it disincentivizes artificial profit shifting. There's always the worry for reputational damage from engaging in certain, or having some structures. So in a way, the company might say it's not really worth the tax saving if we have to disclose it and it looks like we're using these entities in those jurisdictions. So I think in that sense, yes, it's likely to help. But as I already said, we don't really know how this data will be interpreted. So this, in a way, there's also the risk that even a group of companies, a multinational that is not engaging in profit shifting, in artificial profit shifting, might be found to be or accused of doing so because the information is not understood. So there's likely to be some divergence of approach between member states as to what kind of commercially sensitive information can be excluded. So there might be a bit of forum shopping in that sense. But a lot would depend on the detail, the actual detail that is agreed in the end. But there is concern. There is definitely concern that some of the information will be misinterpreted. Interesting conclusions there. I mean, again, just another recap for the benefit of our listeners. So we know that the public country-by-country reporting has come a long way since its first introduction in 2016. And while the initiative is a wholesome attempt at tax transparency, it will come with some pitfalls for multinationals holding companies accountable to the public, investors, and civil society. So, Christiane, we talked about this earlier, where you mentioned a clause in the proposal that allows corporations to withhold sensitive information for up to five years, commercially sensitive information. Do you think that this clause will impede on the mission of true tax transparency? This is likely to cause problems, likely to allow some member states to compete in the sense of being lenient, like in other ways with confidentiality rules, that they have much more lenient rules. And member states have to set out the rules of what would be considered seriously prejudicial. So again, there may be discretion in place. If I understand this correct, it would only be for information that is not in jurisdictions which are blacklisted. So in the provisional text, information relating to jurisdictions that are uh, on the EU list may may never be omitted. Again, we don't know if this will stay in the final text, but even if it doesn't, still, like, it's quite a big exception and it's five years also that can be deferred. So the European Parliament was not very happy with this. They tried to push it to fewer years. But part of the compromise for member states was that this clause will stay in. Otherwise, we would not be talking about public country by country reporting right now. Exactly. That is so true. And I suppose you could say in a way that, you know, if there is a benefit in this clause is helping to provide a level of transparency without losing competitive advantage, just, you know, sort of one way, again, of looking at it. And in terms of the next steps for the proposal, what do you think, Christiane, needs to happen for this proposal to be fully adopted? I know you talked about the member states needing to have some sort of agreement. Could you perhaps elaborate more on that? Well, there needs to be final voting on it. It's a provisional agreement. So there needs to be a final voting, both in Council and the European Parliament. And the European Parliament is definitely going to approve 
very much in favor of this. So, but there needs to be a voting in council. So if by the time of the vote, the member states that are supportive of this, instead of 15, we have nine, it may not go through. You need the actual voting to take place. And sometimes there's a little bargaining, behind the scenes bargaining, when you have voting from some member states asking for certain other things in return. So you never know what's going to happen. I think it's very likely that this will be adopted. Usually when you reach this stage, there is formal approval. And this leads on to my next series of questions. So in your professional opinion, how effective do you think the current proposal will be at creating tax transparency? It's probably pulling together maybe what's already been mentioned. And also, would you make any modifications you know, in your experience? Well, personally, I think there was no need for this proposal. I think there's already in the European Union country-by-country reporting is automatically exchanged by member states. So I don't think there's that much added value by having this information in public and then, as I said, misinterpreted or causing other issues or some member states being very lenient with what is confidential information, some multinationals hiding behind that. I think it continues the trend that we've seen in the European Union with overload of compliance burden on multinationals. And this one is likely to be quite prejudicial for EU parented groups. I can see why they've pushed for this at this time, as we discussed, like the road to economic recovery. So let's make sure no multinationals are doing aggressive tax planning and paying very low effective tax rates. But there's already been quite a lot of transparency, quite a lot of measures bringing in. It very much depends on how the tax authorities and member states are absorbing that information and dealing with that information, assessing it, the multinationals on the basis of that information. Whether or not it's in the public domain, I don't see how that effectively helps a tax authority to say, oh, okay, actually, we haven't seen that in the CBCR that was given to us, was exchanged to us by the other member states, so we're going to raise an audit. So I think it's more of a symbolic gesture rather than having any concrete impact, but it definitely increases the compliance burden for multinationals. Very interesting. Very interesting there. How can MEs proactively prepare if public country by country reporting is adopted in the EU? Well, actually, what they can do is obviously they can try and find the provisional text, which is quite tricky to find. As uh, you know, it's not just the text, there is also other global initiatives, one of which contains public country by country reporting. So, this is some global reporting standards. But perhaps what multinationals can do is look at the global reporting initiatives, the GRIs, which deal with sustainability reporting standards. These are global. They are not binding. They're voluntary for MNEs, and some MNEs follow them. And one of them deals with public country-by-country reporting, and it's been effective from January 2021. So they can have a look at those. They can have a look at the disclosure requirements, existing disclosure requirements, the accounting directive for extractive industries. They can get information from the experience of the, the businesses that were already subject to public country-by-country reporting. And I think with BEPS Action 13, there's already experience built on country-by-country reporting. I think now it's more about what are the requirements now and how they can, this can be addressed in a way that is clear and it will not lead 
to misinterpretation that will have the reputational damage that we talked about in this podcast. Yeah, and I agree. I think that makes perfect sense. And it all circles back really from a from a transfer pricing perspective and documentation, it just it just supports that idea of, of having good, you know, well-researched, robust documentation, right? Yes, definitely. Just to recap on what we've just been saying. So we know now that the rubber is finally hitting the road, as they say, with public country-by-country reports in the EU. This long-awaited initiative proves that tax transparency is about progress, not perfection, maybe. MEs, multinational enterprises will be under a new level of scrutiny, both from a public and internal perspective, but it also presents itself as a self-auditing opportunity. And while the reporting is not yet law, it's an important learning lesson for multinational entities about the value of playing fair after all the whole world is watching. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. And welcome back, everyone. We're here right now with Queen Mary University of London Professor Christiana Paniayi to have our segment. I'll call it my favorite segment of the show. I know I often do, but I just think it's such a great chance to get to know our guests a little bit better inside and out of transfer pricing. It's a segment we call What We Want to Know, and it's a rapid fire round of slightly more personal questions. Sometimes they go into tax. This is an international tax podcast after all. So always question one, Professor Paniai is, are you ready? Yes. Excellent. Question number two, what's the one thing you want your students to take away from your teachings? What I try to teach my students is not just the syllabus at a certain point in time, but how to learn, how to build those skills for continuous learning. You know, reading up the necessary sources, keeping updated, critically analyzing a certain area of law. So it's sort of build the lawyer in them further and provide the skills that are necessary for tax law. Yes, yes. The essence of education, not what to learn, but how to learn. Question number three, what is your favorite dessert? <laughs> I eat everything. I like ice cream and chocolate desserts, but uh, I like everything. <laughs> yes, yes. Very, very good to keep your options open. Yes. Question number four, <laughs> when do you feel most inspired? I think when there are major developments, I get an inspiration to, oh, maybe I should write something about this and that. Uh, But I generally try to keep myself motivated and be writing something all the time. So, you know, I don't like the draft sometimes, you know, when you don't 
how many ideas I forced myself to write something, not every day, but every week to try and do some writing so that ideas keep flowing. Also, a good night's sleep helps. <laughs> sometimes I have young children. So yeah, sometimes just having a good night's sleep helps. <laughs> that reminds me of the work ethic of one of my favorite songwriters, Leonard Cohen, who who never believed in inspiration, but only believed in writing for hours a day, whether you were inspired or not, and to make writing and creative work a, a labor, a true labor, wh whether you were in the mood or not. I, I don't know if everybody can can really abide by that, especially in academia, but I give you a lot of credit. Question number five, how do you think your tax law curriculum will morph in 20 years? This is a very interesting question. I think when it comes to taxation, or at least the kind of tax law I do, EU tax law and international tax law, there's never really a fixed curriculum. It changes all the time. I think we've reached quite an important point, historical point right now, with the impending agreement on pillars one and two. So maybe there'll be a period of rest, of consolidation of everything that's been happening the last seven years. But in the European Union, it's usually, there's always something uh, happening. <laughs> so there's likely to be, so maybe in international tax law, there'll be a bit more of a, a pause after if the agreement on pillars one and two is concluded and, and, and sort of adopted by countries. I think the European Union will likely to have a lot of developments after Brexit, after COVID, the Commission already published its communication on business in the 20th century, business taxation, uh, with very ambitious plans. So I think the tax law curriculum on topics that teach is never static. It's very much intertwined with political development. So it's likely to change quite a lot in the next 20 years. I mean, usually it changes every couple of years anyway. So it's likely to change a lot. We might see a more EU harmonization in the next 10 years than previously. International tax sphere, I think we might have a pause right now and a period of consolidation, implementation by countries, but it, it will never be static. I think it's likely to be changing in the next five, six years. Yes, yes. Very difficult to try to comprehend what's happening or what the tax global tax community will look like in a few years, let alone 20. But I think this craving we're seeing across the board for some level of predictability might might give us hope that one day we will be able to see at least a little bit into the future. After that, though, Professor Paniai, thank you so much for being with us for this informative discussion. We also want to thank Pamesh for hosting on this episode. If you liked this podcast, you're going to love the other shows in Cross Border Solutions Tax Podcast Suite. That's the Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit and the Fiona show tax provision subscribe to this podcast on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts that's the fiona show transfer pricing and we'll keep you up to date on the latest in transfer pricing i'm your host matthew demello andrew o'donnell is our audio producer christy clements is our associate producer marilyn mitchamstrom is our executive producer thanks everybody for tuning in we'll catch you next week